My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Giovanni Ruscitti. Giovanni Perfect. is a first, <laughs> I was nervous. Uh, Giovanni <laughs> is a first generation Italian American who grew up in Frederick, Colorado, which is a small coal mining town that his parents and grandparents immigrated to in the 1950s and early 1960s. He is a nationally recognized attorney, arbitrator, and mediator as well as a frequent speaker at national legal events and was named as one of the most influential business leaders in Colorado. He's also served on numerous nonprofit boards. Giovanni joins me today to talk about his memoir, Cobblestones, Conversations in Corks, a son's discovery of his Italian heritage. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Giovanni. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm happy to have you here. I love the fact that uh, you've got corks in the in the title of your book uh, because you know I do like to uncork stories here, and you can see from my background there's a couple of yep, corks there. Um, but I want to start with asking you the question I ask everybody to begin, which is uh, Giovanni, where does your story begin? You know, this story, the, the book is is uh, it's a it's really a father son story, father son kind of relationship that evolves over time, like we all have with uh, with our parents and. It's also a story um, about uh, discovering your identity and who you are, which a lot of us, you know, think about and struggle with. It's it's a subject of a lot of philosophy. And for me, I was always very comfortable with who I was and what I do. And uh, you know, as you mentioned, I have a, a very active legal career. And, and with a name like Giovanni Rusciti, clearly knew uh, my heritage, but I didn't understand and appreciate my heritage until I took a trip to. Uh, my parents' ancestral town and my entire family going back many, many generations. 
Um, and that that trip, Mike, really brought into context and light um, part of my identity that I didn't appreciate, and really a major understanding of the context of my family's, in particular my father's upbringing. It started with, um, and to answer your question directly, our story really starts in World War II on November 11th, 1943, when the Nazis uh, came in and this was part of this uh, big campaign that they had to take over these small towns in central Italy. Uh, and my family's from Consano, which is in Abruzzo, a very small mountainous part of, of Italy. And uh, they were using that to try and combat the, the Americans and the Polish who were coming up through Sicily. And they, they kicked out my family. My father was seven, my mom was four. Uh, into the mountains, very rugged mountains. And that changed, that event that day kind of changed the scope of their then existence, but also their near-term future. And then ultimately it shaped my life and, and many other people's lives. Yeah. So where did they go? I mean, from the mountains, um, you know, what, how did, how did they survive? How did they adjust to, to sort of a new life? You know, it was, uh, it was, it was a shock for them. They, it, the Nazis had come in about a month before and set up uh, kind of a little uh, area and office to kind of monitor what was happening. But the the mountains, if, if you know anything about Central Italy, the mountains are very rugged, uh, lots of rocks and, and high trees and very dangerous. And uh, in the winter, very cold. So they literally were living in um, makeshift tents with no food. They had a couple hours to vacate. And uh, they lived in those conditions for uh, almost six months. Um, and then when they returned to their town after the Americans took, uh, to, you know, were able to thankfully take back over control of the town in central Italy, um, everything was gone. Uh, all of their valuables were, were taken. Their homes were destroyed. And Mike, one of the interesting things about this trip is um, when I went there in 2013 for the first time, I was 46. And I'd heard so many stories about the town. A lot of it had not recovered from that day. Um, it wasn't bombed. But the people just were forced. They, they were, they, they had to endure this extreme poverty that shapes someone's life. Yeah. Um, and so they they struggled for for many years, and then eventually uh, did what a lot of people did in Europe and certainly Italy, and that is immigrate for a better life and became United States. Yeah, I mean, there's there's you know many aspects to sort of kind of recovering from something like that. There's economic recovery, but there's also psychological recovery. And to see like your your home, you know, where where you where you lived, where you grew up, you know, all of the things that are tied to it, just kind of eviscerated. I imagine that's a huge psychological toll on somebody. Yeah, those are stories that my folks told uh, myself and my sister several times. Well, not several times. If my dad told a story once, he told it a thousand times. So I, I'd heard these stories so many times, but you know, until you actually go to a place like this, you, it has no context, and suddenly stories of how. He, as a young boy at 10 years old, had to cut down timber and, and walk 10 miles to the nearest town to make money for his family came to life. And I, I had a different appreciation for my father that I didn't have before. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great empathy building exercise, I imagine. Um, so when 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 they came over here to the United States, um, what did he do? What was his um, you know occupation? What was his trade? You know, my, my dad was one of those guys who was truly one of the hardest working individuals I've ever met. And Mike, we spend so much time in our society in this country focusing on celebrities, you know, actors, actresses, uh, athletes, politicians. 
and really, I think the story of the ordinary man, like my father and my mother, they, those, those are the folks who lived extraordinary lives and built this country. And, you know, I wrote this book as a promise to my father right before he passed away. He said, somebody should tell our story. Um, and I, I wasn't sure I could actually ever do it as a full-time practicing attorney, managing partner of our firm. Um, but in 2020, you know, we were going through so much in this country, including, you know, you know, BLM issues and social unrest and political unrest, but there was so much targeting of immigrants that I felt really compelled to start writing down the story. I had no idea it was going to turn into what it is today. And it's, it's been so well received. I've received comments from really from people all over the world. Um, every day I get someone messages me in some forum. But my dad was this industrious person. He, he came here with literally the shirt on his back, no education, couldn't speak or read or write English. And um, they were, the Italians and, and Irish were heavily discriminated against in sure. the 50s. So my dad had to endure a lot of that. And so did my mom. And, um, you know, so that, that shaped him, which in turn shaped us, because he, he always talked about the fact that you have to respect everyone doing any job. And my dad was kind of an everyman. He did every job to answer your question. He, he worked in construction. He was a custodian, um, which... There are some stories in the book that I talk about. He, he used that actually to teach himself how to read and write and then eventually become an entrepreneur by simply reading the Wall Street Journal when he was a custodian cleaning the executive's offices at the company he worked for. So he did, he did everything. And, um, you know, that as a young boy, um, it, it was very inspiring to see that kind of work ethic. And, you know, my dad did not suffer a, a victim or a fool or, or the lazy. He, he worked two or three jobs all the time. And, and that is uh, kind of a work ethic that was instilled in all of us that I really, really was inspired by. And I still am to this day. It, it's something that motivates me to think back to what we can do. Yeah. I mean, there's, it's just so much to unpack in what you just said, but just a, a few observations, um, you know, just uh, immigrant stories. I love, I love immigrant stories um, because we were all, I mean, if you live in this country, we're all, you know, not from here. Um, sure. My, uh, the Italian side of my family. So I'm, I'm half Italian, um, a quarter Irish, a quarter German. We don't talk about the German side so much because, <laughs> you know, they may not have been on the right side of history, but who knows? You never uh, well, <laughs> we, they certainly weren't during that time period. They got no, <laughs> no, not, not necessarily, but, um, you know, but I think about my own grandmother's stories, you know, she, they, they came probably in the twenties. Um, so well before World War II, um, but they they came in the 20s and, you know, she was a seamstress. She grew up, you know, um, you know, I don't, her, her father owned like a general store. Um, right. She was a seamstress, but but life was not easy because there was and this isn't really talked about as much. Um, but there was a lot of discrimination against the Italians, against the Irish. You know, that that's one of the reasons why we had Catholic schools in this country is they weren't welcome in in the public schools and my grandmother would would share those stories about growing up in uh, i think they they were first in newark and then they were in new york city and then they wound up in brooklyn but um you know you you hear that and we don't we don't focus on it that much and and to some extent i mean it's not systemic right i mean it's it's right. you know there's other i mean racism still is alive and well and i wouldn't say well but it's still alive in this country but you, you don't hear about it from the point of view of uh sort of those, those early immigrants, but, um, but that, that was a, you know, certainly a, a real thing. Um, but I love hearing that your dad was, was kind of taking on 
you know, these jobs and kind of building up, um, almost serving as a role model for you, it sounds. Um, and here you are as a managing partner in a, in a law firm, you know, that, that had to make him very proud, right? Yeah. My dad was, my dad was one of those guys who, um, no one is a perfect human being. Right. And, and my dad was a typical Italian male immigrant, very, you know, machismo and his kind of that background that, um, you know, didn't always mesh well as a young American boy trying to assimilate into our country at the same time, not speaking English until I was five or six because my family was very Italian. But, um, you know, my dad, notwithstanding the fact that he was discriminated against and was doing these absolute low level jobs at minimum wage, which is shocking. He told me his first job was making a dollar 14 an hour. And he never let that judgment and that discrimination hold him back. And as I mentioned before, you know, he did not suffer the victim or the, 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 the fool or the, the lazy. He just motivated, it motivated him. And so for me and my sisters and uh, many others, uh, he was very inspiring. In fact, you know, when the book came out a couple weeks ago, um, a Hispanic man who he got to know, uh, who came in and did some uh, work on one of my dad's real estate properties. Uh, the guy was working for a different company and, and my dad kind of took him under his wing and just started mentoring him for no reason. He just liked the guy. He was an immigrant from Mexico. And uh, my dad encouraged him to do his own thing. And my dad always said, you can do it. It was one of his, his phrases. He said, if I could do it, I came here with nothing. You can do it. And he would tell everyone that. And he told this, this gentleman that. And that guy went out on his own and formed his own business. And today is very successful. And those stories have been coming out from lots of people who have similar stories about immigrants. So I think, you know, you, you talk about your grandparents and their stories. There are so many stories like this. And this goes back to the ordinary person living that extraordinary life that we just can't lose sight of. And so I was very honored and, and proud to be able to tell the story, not knowing what kind of audience it would have, although I assumed people would have some connection to it. And, yeah. And it's, it's been pretty inspiring to see. That's that's good fodder for the second edition of, uh, of 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 your book, I imagine. You know all these stories that are coming out now. Right. Uh, so, did you start? Did I hear this right? You started writing this during the during the pandemic. I started writing it on Labor Day weekend in 2020. Um, I just felt this. I, I had this deep movement um, internally by the BLM movement, um, and I and, and I I had heard of course about racism but didn't really understand racism and more importantly my anti-racism so i started thinking about that and reading and remembering some of the things that my father and my mother and my grandparents went through and i just felt compelled to discharge that or fulfill that promise that i made to him the year before when he passed away and but i had no idea that it was going to turn into a book i had no outline i'd never written a book i obviously write a lot as a lawyer i sat down with a pencil and a uh a pad and I just started writing and um, suddenly I decided to tell his story through this first trip that I took with him in 2015. Um, it became kind of a spiritual profound kind of you know series of, of, of events just writing out his life story and I then gave it to a few friends to read they said hey this is you should do something with this and then I said, okay, I'll, I'll try and finish the story. Again, without knowing exactly where it was going to take me. Yeah. Um, and then I ended, I ended up learning a lot about myself that, um, you know, like I said before, that your sense of identity 
you never really can appreciate. Usually some major life event that occurs that forces you to step back. And, and for me, it was my father's passing. I learned a lot about myself and how I really became, you know, what I do today. Yeah. I mean, um, it's so funny. I learned so much from, from authors on this show and there are some consistent themes. Um, one of them is if, if you want to start writing, you have to start writing, right? It, it all starts with writing the first sentence, then the first paragraph and the first right. chapter. Um, and that's advice I give aspiring authors, you know, ask me all the time. They're like, Mike, you've written eight books. You talked to all these authors. What's, what's your advice? I want to write a book. And, and the first thing is just start writing. Um, right. and then the second thing I tell people is you're going to be surprised at how much you learn about yourself during the writing process, because whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, um, you're, you're putting yourself into the story somehow. Um, and you do, you do uncover these insights and in many ways, writing to me, writing is a form of therapy. It is, it, it, there's Absolutely. a therapeutic process that happens when you, when you are writing. Oh, totally. And when you, when you finish it and then, you know, I was fortunate enough to work with a great publisher and a great team of you know, publicists and marketing person. And, um, the book was about to come out. You suddenly start having this imposter syndrome. Oh, absolutely. Who's going to want to read my book? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I've got an interesting life, but what, why is anyone going to read our story? But as I step back and really started thinking about it, um, hearing how other people, I love being inspired, Mike. I can be inspired so many different ways. I love to read. And by the way, thank you for your show. I think it's great for, for authors and it's a great platform. So I appreciate what you're doing. Um, I, I was really hoping that this story would inspire others. And I've gotten so many messages from people. I got a call yesterday from somebody saying, you know, I, I don't know what I'm going to write about, but you've inspired me to write. And lots of people have been saying, hey, I love this. I love your writing style. What are you going to do next? <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, I've started thinking about that and I really enjoyed the process, but you're right. You have to sit down and start. And um, not only was it therapeutic, it's also cathartic because, you know, if you've had a parent pass, um, getting to, you know, say some of the things that maybe you didn't get a chance to is very important. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, you know, the other, the other theme that comes up is the, the importance of encouragement. Um, you know, and it sounds like you had some encouragement along the way, giving some, you know, early drafts to people who are encouraging, Hey, you got to do more with this. You should finish it to the, you, you know, even hearing after it's published, you know, hearing how, you know, you impacted someone else's life that it, to me, like when I hear, you know, feedback like that, it's okay. Well, if this book never becomes a bestseller, it doesn't matter because it's impacted somebody. Um, and it might sound cliched, but if you can just impact one life with, with this work, um, then it's, you know, in, in, in my mind, it's a bestseller. It's better than a bestseller because it's, um, it's done something to, to motivate someone else. You know, Mike, I think about that all the time. And what I do as a managing partner in my firm, I'm, I'm always, you know, lawyers are not viewed as thought leaders. And I'm always bringing in speakers into our firm to talk to our partners and other folks about, um, you know, how we can improve individually. Um, and I, I think it's one of those things that we all should take a step back and say, how do I improve my, who I am? You know, that sense of identity, identity leadership. Um, we had Stephen Graham, for example, come in and speak to my firm a couple months ago. It was just fantastic having that kind of person come in. And, and when I do those kind of presentations and bring in these thought leaders, I'm always thinking exactly what you just said. As long as one person, one person connects with it, 
I feel like it's a major success. And with this book, I've been just overwhelmed with the outpouring of support. I mean, I got emails from people in Australia, in Italy, Canada, all the way in the States, uh, South America saying they, they, some people actually connected very specifically to stories that I told. Like there's a story uh, in, during World War II where my mom, she was four, as I said, witnesses a, a young boy getting blown up by a bomb that was dropped. And so I wrote that story because it was, it was part of the World War II part that I was telling. Well, somebody in Australia read the book and that was her great uncle. And so those little connections like that are just truly amazing. The boy who was killed was her great uncle? Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Crazy story. And I, when, I, when I got that message, you know, it, it, I have chills now. It was very chilling because she said that was my great uncle. And But the act of inspiration uh, goes back to what I was saying. You know, the, those ordinary people with these great stories can touch so many. We just need to tell stories. Yeah. And I think lawyers are good storytellers. And I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, um, you know, because I do watch a fair amount of Law and Order. Uh, <laughs> I'm not but, sure that's very accurate, though, Mike. No, I, I, you look, I know cases aren't resolved in like in a day, right? Where do they go to trial that quickly? Uh, my twin brother is a lawyer, so I have a little bit of the inside, um, a little bit of the inside there. But it's amazing. You're probably I'm in the double digits now of lawyers I've interviewed on the show who have written books, um, you know, some nonfiction, but many fiction. Um, so I do think there is, you know, something of something. There's some Venn diagram of, of, you know, the drive to become a lawyer, the interest in becoming a lawyer and then creative writing or or just kind of writing in general that um, there, there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah, you know, as lawyers, regardless of the type of law you do as a litigator or a transaction attorney, you're, you're doing writing. Um, now, honestly, a lot of it's not very creative um, because judges really want to get to the point. And so, you know, we use a lot of active direct, you know, speaking of writing, we use a lot of active direct voice. Um, that's not a very entertaining book. And so when I, and I, you know, I mentor a lot of our young lawyers and I tell them all the time, active direct voice if it's not necessary take it out because the judge doesn't really want to read it anyway this, this process was very different because i was writing a story in past tense present tense going back and forth between 2013 1944 2019 and so it was one of those it was actually very challenging yeah. but going back to something you said before um i i, I just had this deep appreciation for the process that I've never had before. And uh, one that I now, now understand, you know, you said you've, you've written eight books and I've seen some of them that um, I understand why people become really interested in doing this. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you mentioned if, if it's not needed, take it out. That's a lesson that a lot of new authors really learn the hard way sometimes during the editing process. Um, I do too. <laughs> you know, so, well, tell me a little bit more about that. So, you know, you, you know, in my experience, I give in a hundred thousand words and, you know, 30,000 are cut. Um, and sometimes I, sometimes I, I say, Hey, wait, why are we cutting this? This is needed. They're like, no, it's not. But, um, tell me, yeah. tell me your experience with that. Yeah. So I have a great publisher, uh, radius, uh, book group is fantastic. And they, they assembled a fantastic team. So the book went through three rounds of editing. The first editor that was assigned was kind of a substantive editor and, and, um, we had a process for his review and his feedback back to me. And the very first, I was very nervous, of course, right? Because 
where I currently am in my career, no one really critiques my work other than maybe a judge or an arbitrator, but very few people change it. Um, when I got back his comments, his very first comment to the very first sentence was, this is cliche. You need to take it out. And I was, I was heartbroken. I was angry. I was like, who is this guy telling me this is cliche? And, um, but, but I, I, I told myself, I talked to my wife and I said, you know, I'm just going to be open-minded about this. And he's the expert. I'm not. And, uh, yeah, they, 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 they change a lot. As you know, uh, you give up some control and here I have a lot of control still with the book, which is one of the reasons why I went with this particular publisher, yeah. but they changed the title. And I had, I mentioned to you, one of the things my dad used to say was you can do it. And I was all excited about the title of the book was going to be, you can do it. I had a photo of my dad the day he immigrated from Italy and I had it all figured out. Right. You know, uh, I, I meet with the marketing team and she's like, no, we got to change this title. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, she said, have you Googled, you can do it. And um, I quickly did. And there were like 20 other books and they're yeah. all self-help books. And I mean, to a certain extent, this book is, I wouldn't call it self-help, but it's, it, it's a, it's a love story between a father, as I said, a father, son and an ancestral background, a town. Um, and so there, there was, you know, self-improvement in there, but I, I, I struggled with that. And eventually, once I gave, I said, I'm going to give up control to the people who are true experts. Uh, the, the process went so smoothly. And yeah, yeah they did take out a lot of words. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, that happens. <laughs> it does, but it is, you know, it, 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 it actually is a, a smart decision on your part because you could fight for your children, right? Because, you know, all these yeah. words are kind of your children, but at some point they know the business better than you do. Um, yeah, you can't get married with words. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So how did you better reconnect to your Italian heritage through either this writing process or even actually going back to that that trip you took um, in 2013? Well, first, you know, touching touching the ground, you know, just t literally the, the act of touching it, uh, it. It was such a profound moment. Just, you know, I, I described this in the book, the drive up through the winding roads, the winding mountain and, and turning left and, and seeing this town for the first time. Um, it was like a, a place that time had forgotten. And my my family, both sides, go back at least to the 16, 1500s to this area, to this very small town. So literally every person that I could possibly think of, and I went through the Ancestry.com process as well, comes from this little place. So understanding that and then, you know, reading names on, on World War One and Two Monuments, um, First up, just the, the sense of this is where my I truly am from was kind of overwhelming. But then the stories coming to life. Um, you know, my dad told the story of going back to World War II of um, one of his cousins. The Nazis were coming in and uh, going back to that 11, November 11th date, you had an option. You either left as they wanted you to, you could stay behind, become their servants, or you could fight and be killed and or sent up to Padua to a prisoner of war camp. And a lot of people did, there were people who did all three. My, my Both sides of my family said, we're not staying behind and acting as your servant. We, we're not gonna do that, so they left. But as they were leaving, my dad saw one of his cousins being chased by one of the Nazi soldiers and he jumped, he was gonna jump from one building to another and plummeted to his death. Um, I'd heard that story a bunch but then when my dad was there pointing to the building, 
again, it was just something that you didn't really understand. And we all have stories like that, Mike. And that's what's great about my story is it's it's every person's story. Um, but just going back and, and, and having that sense of where we come from. Um, and then the other things that, you know, obviously I, I, I had always known a lot of my identity. You know, when I was a young boy, I'd spent time with my dad and my grandfather um, making wine in my grandfather's wine cellar. And, um, but never, you know, I, I'm a big wine drinker. Um, I don't know if you are. With, uh, oh, yeah. Well, you know, all these courts are <laughs> mine at one point. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but my love of food and wine started in that wine cellar um, that replicated the wine cellar that they had in Central Italy. And just the smells, you know, the musk and the damp and the dirt and the salt and pepper because there was prosciutto hanging there as well. Yeah, and so the wasn't just, probably. Yeah, it wasn't just, you know, the World War II kinds of things, but it was also... Um, kind of taking me back to things in my childhood that framed me that I didn't really connect, you know, um, things that I always really appreciated about my background. Now I was very proud to be willing to put this all out there in the book about that background. And, you know, going back to, you know, my, my father being discriminated against, one of the things that he always was, and I'm sure you have this in your family as well, fiercely proud of his background. He loved the fact that he was Italian. He loved the food, the culture. Um, he loved playing bocce ball and just all those things that he never, he never, you know, a lot of people don't want to connect to that part of their background. That wasn't him. And so that also came to life during this trip. For me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a life-changing trip, sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Tommy thinks that I didn't know. Have you been back since? Uh, I have. So we've been uh, trying to go back every other year, going in October again. Going to start off in uh, Piedmont, going to drink some Barolo and have some truffle during the truffle festival and then go down into Tuscany and then make our way back into Abruzzo. Oh, that sounds like a glorious trip. I've never been. Um, everyone in my family has been. Uh, and uh, my older sibling, my older siblings got the tour from my grandmother um, and her. She still had sister. She still had a sister out there. Um, and, uh, but she died in what, 92 now, uh, my mother is still with us, but she's 89 and she's not going anytime soon. Um, so it would be like a, um, almost like a solo mission, I think for me, um, without anyone in the, uh, in the family there, but I, I know I've got like distant cousins out there. Um, you got to do it. it. It's, it's, uh, people have asked me in the, the, the process of talking about the book, you know, what, what would you tell people? Um, what, what, what one of the things you would tell people? And I would say, you know, try and discover your heritage. You know, if you have the opportunity to go back, well, first, talk to your family members about your background, your, your heritage, where they're from. But if you have a chance to go to a place, and who doesn't want to go to Italy, right? right. If you have a chance to go, go to Italy, go and, and spend the time there and, and really immerse yourself into the culture because it's a beautiful culture. Um, just the, the way that they live their lives is, is so different from here. Yeah, I would encourage you to do it. Yeah. Heck, I'll be I'll be your guide. Well, then we'll go together. <laughs> I, only, I only fly first class. I hope you're okay with Same that. Same here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. 
I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Um, I always like to get to know people a little bit better at this part of the conversation by talking about pop culture. So I'm curious, Giovanni, when you were growing up, uh, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh, geez. Uh, I'm a big sports fan, so uh, I love football. Um, I loved a lot of the you know the Denver Broncos and the Denver Nuggets, but TV shows, uh, Happy Days, Breeze Company were a big part of what we watched. Um, Welcome Back, Cotter. I love Welcome Back, Cotter. Mr. Cotter. <laughs> I love that show. I still have that song. I play it on my iTunes. Oh, it's great. Yeah, every it's now and then, it, they play it on Sirius Radio every now and then. And I'm like, oh, man, I just, I love that show. Yeah. So those are, you know, those are things we watched. And then if I went to my grandparents, um, my grandma Nunziata would have me watch the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> so, my, my grandmother did too. Thank you. Thank you. With the bubbles. I remember bubbles. Right. Right. So, and like, was there an accordion or something involved there? I, I, now this is going back a ways, but there, there was an accordion. Yeah. I can't remember the guy's name, but he had a big accordion. And, you know, my, my dad was a harmonica player and um, he loved whenever he had a glass of wine or two, which was you know frequent. He he uh, pulled out the harmonica and entertained everybody. And there's there's stories in the book about how he serenaded my mom when, when he was a young man. And she was, she was a young girl and he would go play and sing songs. And, uh, it was just a big part of their that's beautiful. Well, speaking of songs, uh, growing up, who did you like to listen to? What kind of music were you into? Uh, Electric Light Orchestra. Oh, uh, Jeff Lynn. He's amazing. Yeah, ELO was a big part of my early... Yeah, let's see, I was born in 66, so that, that probably would have been 75, 76. Uh, I grew up in a small town, so I also listened to a lot of country music. Uh, so we listened to very diverse types of music, but I liked you know, Charlie Rich, um, uh, you know, he was certainly one of my favorites, uh, ELO. And then Van Halen came out in VH1. All of a sudden, my musical taste changed, and uh, I started getting into the, that kind of rock and roll. Yeah, that was a monster of an album. It was. I still, I still love it. Listen to it all the time. Oh, yeah. it's And it sounds like it could have been recorded yesterday. Like, for some reason, like, a lot of those early Van Halen albums, they don't, they don't age. Um, they don't. To me, they, they don't. don't. My kids might no, say. I, I, I have playlists. Uh, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't know if, if you have kids, but mine are now 29. Uh, Dante's 29, Donato's 26, and then Bell is 23. Um, but they'll they'll play a song from the 70s that I've heard a thousand times, and they're hearing it for the first time. I'm like, Dad, have you ever heard this song from, you know, you name it? And I'm, I'm like, yeah, I can sing it to you. I know every word. <laughs> well, that's the thing, because our music, I believe, is timeless, and their popular music is garbage. Um but but no, I have, I've got three 20 year olds. We have triplets. And um, oh, wow. one of them, she and my daughter Maggie and I did a road trip. We, we flew down to Florida and we drove my father's car back to Connecticut. Um, so we had a good like 18 hours in the car and she put together a playlist on Spotify. And it's like, it was like the most amazing playlist ever. I knew every song. I'm like, Maggie, what's the name, <laughs> what's the name of this playlist? She's like, right. songs my dad would like. 
That's funny. But she That's nailed funny. it. She nailed it. So I got to ask you a question. If you're you're in Connecticut, yeah. are you a Sally's guy, a modern guy? I mean, who, what's, what's your favorite pizza? You know, I I think they're overrated, to be honest. Because <laughs> my grandmother made her own pizza. There you go. Um, so no, I um, they're fine. I they're okay. New Haven style pizzas. Okay, I'm, I'm, I, I like New York pizza. Yeah. Um, I like New York, but if if I was going between Sally's and and Pepe's, probably Sally's. Um, okay. Modern, I've okay. never had. Modern, I've never had. Um, there's another place called Tolly's in North Haven or East Haven, one of the Havens, not New Haven. That's uh, it's like a little hidden gem. I, I think I like Tolly's better than than the rest of those. But um, but speaking of food, it's 1976. You're 10 years old. What's on the menu for Christmas Eve? Oh, Christmas Eve was. Uh, the feast of the seven. Well, the feast of the seven fishes is what most people think of it as. But we had like ten, you know, fifteen fishes. Um, it was a four or five hour meal, course after course after course. Um, so what? If you know that, I'm sure you do. Um, we would have everything from shrimp to crab to bacala to um, uh, sometimes lobster and, and sardines and anchovies. And, and, and my parents would make every, every fish was a different dish. And, and now we still do. I still carry on that tradition. Um, since my father passed, um, I've been hosting that event at, at, at our house and um, just great times. You know, you, most people don't think that you can have fish and pasta sauce, but it's truly one of the best things. <laughs> uh, so a little bay shrimp is fantastic. And yeah. by the way, you could also have red wine with that too. With oh, yeah. Well, I think you'd have red wine with anything. You can, of course. I mean, I'd, I'd say Frosted Flakes pairs well with a nice, <laughs> you know, Montepulciano. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but food was a big part of what we did. I mean, uh, Christmas Eve was one, but, you know, we also, I, I talk a lot about this in the book. Um, food was such a big part of our, our upbringing and culture, but simple dishes like polenta uh, mm. with just a little bit of olive oil and garlic and salt and pepper was amazing. And my mom would make this dish. Um, I, I just love, she made these, a thin crust pizza. So two, it was a two layer pizza with anchovies, white anchovies, garlic, olive oil, salt and pepper, red pepper flakes. Mike, man, it was so good to die for. But that's, you know, Central Italy is about simple foods. Yeah. You know, there's not a lot of ingredients because they didn't have a lot. Right, right. Um... What lesson about publishing uh, do you feel like you learned the hard way, kind of going through the publishing process for this book? You know, I, because I didn't have a lot of expectations, you know, I, I feel like there's probably a lot of authors out there who have this mind of what it's supposed to be like. Um, and then they, they go through rejection and they go through years of trying to get something published. Uh, for me, I since I didn't set out to write a book that was going to get published, I had a slightly different experience. But I think it's one that everyone can learn from. And that is, and this is true for everything in life. You know, everything happens in due time and in order and the way it's supposed to. I firmly believe that. And so um, what I did was I went very slow, even though from start date from when I started writing it, which was September 6th, to publication date, which was August 16th, it was two years. Um, it seems like a fast time. I actually went very slow. I, I hired... Um, a literary consultant in New York who was fantastic. She gave me great advice on the process about, you know, the traditional publishing route to the self-publishing to the hybrid. And there's, you know, the world of publishing has changed so much over the years. 
Um, and I interviewed a lot of different folks to serve as a literary agent. Uh, being a lawyer, of course, you know, it's a world that I know, um, you know, the contract world. And it, for me, ultimately, it became about relationships. Um, I talked to, I narrowed down the list of publishers to a half dozen uh, that fit all three categories, traditional, hybrid, and self. And I, and I ultimately decided I don't want to do anything on self. And so then it kind of was those other two. And it came down to who did I have the best relationship with that I thought really appreciated my story that I was telling. Um, and that was Radius. And Mark Fretz over there was fantastic and put together a great team. And um, I would just tell people, if you're going to, if you're really going to devote your, the time to write a book, uh, think about the way that you want to get it out. And, and what is, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, are you just trying to accomplish a book for your family? That's, that's easy. You know, you can self-publish. If you want to try and touch as many people as possible, you want to go, you need to go a different route. And, um, you know, just, just take the time to find out what you really want to do and then go find the, the, the right team to work with you. Yeah. No, great, great advice and a very rigorous process you went through. Um, you know, it's interesting. You said you were interviewing publishers and usually it's, uh, it's not in, in, in many cases, it's the other way around, you know, trying to, trying to find someone who will actually do it for you. But it's, it's, uh, I like your approach of having kind of it, it all kind of mapped out your, your three doors in front of you. It sounded like you went with what door number two is are they a hybrid publisher. I take it or. Yeah, they're a hybrid and they, they have uh, so they're, a, they are a division of, of diversion publishing, which is a traditional publisher. So they have aspects of both, which is really what appealed to me. Um, and yeah, you know, when I, when I say I was interviewing publishers, it's just, it, it kind of goes back to um, a philosophy that my dad taught us. And that is, Hey, you're, you're not better than anyone else, but you are just as good as anyone else. And when I was talking to people, yeah, they were interviewing me for all intents and purposes, but I wanted to make sure they were the right person for my project. Um, and ultimately, Radius was, was, was fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. You, you really got to think of the end game as as an author. Um, you know, and I also, I often say that, you know, writing is the fun part of, of right. the process. And then there's the business side of things. And you have to approach it from, from a business, you know, mindset or else, you know, be prepared for, for your friends and family be, to be the only people who are going to read the book. Um, yeah. And I had, I, you know, I, that was a, when I interviewed these folks and talked to everybody and, and was being interviewed, um, that question always came up. What, what do you want to accomplish? And I said, Hey, listen, this isn't, I have a full career. I'm blessed. This isn't about selling copies and making money. It's about touching people. And so going back to what you said earlier, if I, if I touch one person, that's all I really want you to do. But then there's a part of you, Mike, that once you go through all this hard work, I wanted it to touch as many people as possible. That's yeah. just kind of my personality. And, um, yeah, that business side of it is, is something that you need to go in eyes wide open because it's very different, especially if you go down the, the self-publishing route, you're on your own. Yeah. You're totally on your own. And then if you go down the traditional route, you're on your own in a different way. It's true. <laughs> It's absolutely <laughs> true. It, you know, and at some point you you have to do you know all the promotion um, or most of it anyway. Unless you're a huge name author, the publishing house isn't going to give you their top publicists. You know, you're gonna maybe you get a couple of days of someone's time, and then you're pretty much on your own. But it is a business that has changed so much. And you know, if I were you know working for the big traditional publishers, I'd I'd be a little nervous. Um, 
because yeah, they're probably always going to be around, but with, with all the challenges being thrown at them from self-publishing to the hybrid models, um, that, you know, turn things around a lot quicker. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'd, I'd be, I'd be nervous and there's high quality material coming out through, through those types of publishing. Well, you can get a book out now to market. Uh, when we finished our last round of editing and went to print, it was been March, April, and it came out August 16th of this year. So that's a relatively short time period. Um, but yeah, if you look at you know Amazon, which is the biggest place to buy books nowadays, I and mean, 80% of books by new authors are sold in that arena. I think I got that right. But I, something like over 60% of all books are sold on Amazon. Mm-hmm. If you look at Amazon's bestseller or new release list, it's filled with you know, the hybrid route kind of authors. And I think there is going to be a shift. And, you know, this is my first experience in it, but watching it, just seeing it, um, unless you're one of those big names like Malcolm Gladwell or Dan Shapiro, you know, yeah, there, there's always going to be a place for traditional publishers. But I think for other people like myself, um, you can certainly go that route. But I, I think the, the hybrid route, for me anyway, worked out very well. And like I said, you have to just figure out what you want and, are you willing to give up all control, for example, or do you want to retain some control? And even if you go the hybrid route, as we talked about, you're going to give up a lot of control. Yeah, fair enough. Um, last question I have for you is if you could whisper some words of advice uh, to your younger self, you know, what would you tell, you know, a younger Giovanni? Well, you know, the, the book is about a father-son relationship and about my dad. And what I would tell myself as a young boy not understanding my dad and not understanding why the way, you know, he was the way he was. And um, what I would tell myself is, you know, he's doing the best he can under the circumstances with what he has. And, you know, forgiveness is freedom. I talk about both those concepts in the book, but those, those are things, Mike, that we can learn in every aspect of life is most people, not everybody, but most people are doing the best they can under the circumstances with the tools that they have. And that's what my father was doing. And then once I learned that, learned to appreciate that and forgave the things that were not major things, but just things that, you know, kind of put us apart for a period of time. Uh, we had just a, a, an amazing relationship. And I think we all need to remember that you don't, ju- don't judge so quickly. Try to understand why somebody is doing what they're doing and who they are. And that, that's the best advice I would give myself and really anybody for that matter is don't be so quick to judge. Yeah, we have, we I think we all need more empathy in uh in life spe- specifically these days. Um there sure. seems to be a, an empathy gap you know in, uh, in in modern culture. But uh Giovanni, where can people buy uh Cobblestone's Conversations and Corks, a son's discovery of his Italian heritage? So really anywhere books are sold. So uh, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Target, uh any place like that. Go to your local bookstore and ask for the book and they'll start carrying it. Um, you can also reach out to Radius Book Group and go to their website, and you can find me on LinkedIn or my law firm website, which is bhgrlaw.com, and, and I can help put you in, in touch with a place to get the book. All right, very good, and we'll we'll put all your contact information in the show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out uh, and talk to Giovanni, um, you know you'll be able to do so. Just look at the show notes, and you'll have all of his contact information there. Except I won't give your phone number, or email address. We'll just we'll just keep it. <laughs> Keep it uh, to LinkedIn and your website and any socials you might have. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. All right, Giovanni, it's been a fun conversation. Thanks for joining and letting me uncork your story. Absolutely. And salute. Next time you have a glass of wine. (laughs) Which will be this evening. Same here. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.